For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we're talking about escaping the trap of materialism. Talking about money in the church. It's always a lot of fun to get up in front of a bunch of people and talk, and, you know, at church and talk about money. Uh, why? Why is it daunting? Uh, well, uh, there's a lot of cynicism out there about religious organizations and money and scandal. And that cynicism, unfortunately, is very well earned. Uh, you know, if you're a student of history, you may know, you may have heard of something called the Reformation, right? Uh, which was started in no small part because the Catholic Church was trying to, be, to build St. Peter's Basilica, the biggest church in the world today that still exists. And uh, they were doing this thing uh, where they were offering indulgences. Essentially, indulgences said uh, that uh, if you had loved ones who had died, they were being punished by God in a place called purgatory, and you could give the church money and buy them some time out of torture. And people were like, oh my gosh, that's so important. You know, grandma died and I'm sure she's being punished by God. So, you know, here's a thousand dollars, you know, get her out. And they would say, oh, it's so beautiful. And a guy named Martin Luther came along and said, this, this is terrible. There's no biblical basis for this. Uh, he was trying to reform the church. Uh, and they said, no, thank you. How about we kill you instead? And he uh, decided, okay, maybe we should just start something new, which was what the Reformation was, right? There's St. Peter's Basilica today. That is not a cartoon. That is actual. There are, those are people, you know, this uh, church that's, uh, I, you know, it's real interesting. Try Googling how much is St. Peter's Basilica worth, and it, they, Google just laughs at you. It's just like, how do you, how do you judge, you know? There, was, there were some estimates that, you know, and the dollars, you know, going from the ducats of, of the time that it was built to the dollars today, uh, you know, it might have been around $600 million. But that doesn't include any of the artwork, any of the, 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 the tapestries. And it, they're basically like, it's, it might as well just be a gazillion dollars, right? Because you just can't tell uh, how much has been spent there. However, the Protestant church... Not really that much better, or any better, if you think about it. Uh, it's not as though we would say the Protestant church has been a pillar of uh, wise spending and frugality and uh, holding up God's view of, uh, of material wealth. There's the Crystal Cathedral. Uh, the, that's just part of it. That's just the pipe organ in the Crystal Cathedral. Uh, the, the ministry that runs that was recently bankrupt, uh, and they sold the Crystal Cathedral, to the Catholic Church, incidentally, uh, for $56 million. Um, that's a picture of the pipe organ. I don't know if you can see, that's where the organist sits for like perspective of what this thing is. That's where the person sits, right there. And this $2 million organ is used to worship the Lord. That's gross. That's not what we see in the Bible. It, and it's not just about the obvious waste, the extravagant nature. Uh, I mean, that stuff is bad, but it's also the extortion, right? Where we see people 
being threatened uh, supposedly by God. Give us money or God will get you, right? Or, you know, there's con men. I mean, they're saying stuff like, give us money and God will make you rich. You know who really hopes that that will work and really gets engaged with that? The poor. The poor often are the people that are preyed on by these hucksters, these shysters, more than anyone else. Give us money and God will heal you. People that have serious physical uh, ailments, critical diseases and ailments, are just pouring money away, giving money in hopes that maybe in their last desperate, desperate hope that God will save them because they gave money to some televangelist. You throw on that the innumerable cases of corruption, pastors making millions and millions of dollars the way that they pray on the poor, and it's gross, it's ugly, and when you come, when you're in my position and you come to a passage of the Bible that talks about money, you just go, oh, oh, Lord, help me. Help me to, to, to give an accurate picture of who you are, not the perverted disgusting picture that we've created of you but let's go to the word of God and look at what he how he really talks about this because the Bible does talk about money it's just very different from the way that we've seen all these negative examples that I've just rolled out there it helps um, as we read this to, to kind of get back into the historical context Remember, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. His relationship with them is very strained. Um, but one of the things that's going on, and it's actually one of the primary uh, reasons for his writing his letter, is the church in Jerusalem, the people that have come to Christ, the Jewish people who have come to Christ who live in Jerusalem, are under very heavy persecution. And it makes sense, right? It was the religious authorities of, of their day that had crucified Christ, wrongfully accused him of crimes, and sentenced him to death. And then you can imagine how they would feel about his followers, right? So their property is being seized. They're being thrown out in the streets. Um, they're having a very difficult time um, being persecuted and um, being thrown out and, and, and caused to be homeless because of their following of Jesus Christ's teaching. And so this church in Jerusalem, which has thousands of members, is experiencing this really hard time. And what they're doing is they're saying, well, you know, as the church grows out in the broader world and, and to the Roman Empire, there's a lot of people who are coming to Christ, and if we band together, if we come together, we can start to help some of these guys with their situation. And one of the important contexts here is that most of the Christians in Jerusalem were obviously from a Jewish background, but most of the Christians happening that were people who were coming to Christ outside of Israel were coming from a Greek pagan background. And so we have these sort of Greek background Christians and these Jewish background Christians, and there was quite a bit of tension within the church because these were very different people coming from very different places with very different cultures, and they were coming together under the banner of God's love, but it was like, you know, there's a lot of mistrust, a lot of suspicion about each other. And so there were concerns about unity between Jewish background Christians and Gentile. Gentile just means everybody who's not Jewish. Jewish. 
And so the Christians uh, were paying a heavy price. The Jewish Christians were paying a heavy price in Jerusalem. And Paul, for one, sees this as an opportunity as he's working predominantly with Greek Christians to say this is a chance for us to express the love of God, the generosity of God, but to bring unity between these two people groups that are a part of the family of God. And so he goes to the Gentile church that he's reaching out to, and he says, look, you guys need to know about this, and you could really help them. They were being persecuted too in the Greek churches, but not nearly as bad as what was happening in Jerusalem. So they started a collection as the church was spreading to help the people that were losing their property, their homes, and their lives back in Jerusalem. And we see evidence of that. We go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, and we see Paul talking to them about this in his previous letter. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, saints in this context is just believers, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you approve, I will send with them letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it's fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after, and I go, after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia. So this is kind of an interesting picture of how this worked in the ancient world. You know, it's clear that it was very proactive. It was methodical, right? He's not saying, I'm going to show up and we're going to take a collection. He's saying, actually, I'd like to avoid that. Instead, why don't you guys just set aside some money every week, and then when we show up, we'll take that. But let's, let's really make a difference here. Let's not just, you know, shake out our pocket change whenever I arrive, but let's set, intentionally set some money aside to make this happen. But how much money does he say to do? He says, as much as seems right to you. Which that's pretty unusual a lot of times. You know, imagine uh, that the tax code turned into uh, just pay how much you think you, you, you use, right? <laughs> when you feel like it, right? How would, how, how would uh, our country fare if we were all just, you know, you know, give your conscience when it comes to taxes. But that's exactly God's perspective here is you decide, right? You decide what you should do. There's no shame. There's no guilt. But there is a need. And then there's God's perspective on wealth. And it was also accountable. He says, I'm not asking you to all set all this money aside and then give it to me and trust me to take it. Even though he's the Apostle Paul, he says, then you guys will pick a representative who will carry the money and make sure that your interest, the reason that you give this money, is accomplished. That's pretty cool. That's pretty thoughtful. Uh, and it's also interesting when you add into that, Paul's relationship, remember, with the church in Corinth is under quite a bit of stress. The, first, the letter of 1 Corinthians, which I just quoted, that's like the nicest he is to them in that letter right? There's a lot of stuff. And so, you know, one thing is, is he's explaining this need, but he is not shying away from also telling them the truth. So he is not deceiving them, being real nice until he gets their money and then, talk, and then turning on them and telling them about what their problems are. He's telling them what their problems are and saying, oh, by the way, there's also this opportunity to give and you should get engaged with that. 
And now he's writing 2 Corinthians where he's saying, you know, I don't want to be alienated from you guys, and I'm glad that, you know, you took my first letter, but let's be reconciled. And by the way, there's this thing, I'm still coming, and there's this thing in Jerusalem, and these believers need your help. Really interesting. He reminds them of the need and gives them principles on how to respond. And it's totally different than all the stuff we were just talking about right? This money is not going to build cathedrals. It's going to save lives. No one is getting rich from this. It's not like the idea that like the more spiritual you are, the more blessed you are by God, and that you're going to be, you know, really wealthy if you uh, beget, become really spiritual uh, is really antithetical to what Jesus says, where he says, uh, the son of man has no one, nowhere to lay his head, Right? I mean, just look to who Jesus was. Did Jesus live in a giant mansion? It was, I mean, Jesus is the pinnacle, the ultimate picture of what a spiritual being would be. And he spent his life giving. He spent his life investing himself in others and giving to others uh, without concern for material needs. That's the picture and so no one is going to get rich from this collection. It was an expression where we were looking at and seeing that, you know, Paul was saying, I know that you guys feel a kinship, a brotherhood, and a connection with these other believers, even though they're from a different country, they're from a different background, they are from a different culture. We are one in Christ, and these guys have need, and let's come together and do something for them. And that it would be this great expression of unity between the Gentile and the Jewish Christians. So when we arrive at 2 Cor 8, verses 1 through 4, and we see he brings this up again. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Remember, at the end of 1 Cor, he said, I'm going to go through Macedonia, and then I'm going to come see you. So he's actually writing this from somewhere in Macedonia. And he says that in a great ordeal or affliction of their, um, that they have given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great de- ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed and the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of, of participation and the support of the saints. What is he saying? He's saying, you know, I'm here in Macedonia, and the church here is being persecuted too. But their persecution is resulting in joy. And by the way, he says, they're also very poor, but their poverty is resulting in generosity. And it's so interesting how he's explaining to them, and this is how God works. He takes our poverty and turns it into generosity. He takes our pain and he turns it into joy when we let him have his way in our life. And he's saying it's not that these guys aren't suffering. It's not that they're wealthy, but they are super excited and desirous, begging us to participate in this. And the question is why? Why are they this way? Why are they, as they are suffering, as they are being persecuted, and why, as they are Poor, are they so excited and begging, he says, for the opportunity to be generous? They saw the opportunity here, and they saw God's perspective that this was a chance to help people who were in need. And they were not being compelled 
to give a certain amount. And you know, no one was getting up and, be, and, and guilting them and shaming them. They just felt, as they had God's perspective, that it was something that they would enjoy and that would be excited to be engaged with. And that's really the question that I want to wrestle with is how do we achieve a perspective like this about generosity, about material goods? We need God's perspective on this. We live in a culture inundated with wealth and materialism that drives us You know, our entire culture is moving over and practically has moved over to a consumer economy where, you know, your job in order to make sure that other people are still employed is to buy stuff. And if we stop buying stuff, the economy freaks out. And so we have to buy new and better and higher versions of things. And companies are like, we'll put out a new version of this every six months. And we need you to buy it. And so we live in that culture, and we have that perspective, and then we have this sort of religious history of negativity about the way that churches or religious organizations as a whole tend to, tend to manipulate people out of their money. And so there is a lot of reason for cynicism, but God comes in here and he says there's a perspective that can, that can cause you to become generous and joyful. That sounds like kind of a tall order. Are we joyful for the privilege of helping others in their need? I mean, I sit down and I write these things out, you know, and it's like sometimes I'm just writing them out and I'm like, oh, Lord, I hear you, you know. Am I excited when I give to the different charities that I give? Am I like, oh, it's another great day to be giving my money away, you know? Uh, Not that often. Not that often. Most of the time I'm like, yeah, it's the right thing to do, you know. I should do this. Uh, I wish there were a way, you know, where I could keep more of this for myself. I often have that thought. It's pretty gross. There's a perspective here that I need and that I think a lot of us need. A lot of us do give, but is, is giving a source of joy in our lives, Are we excited enough that we're going to give not just out of our excess, but out of our need? And what I mean by that is, is have you been challenged to maybe change your lifestyle so that that you could be more generous in meeting the needs of other people? That's a pretty pretty un-American thought right there, that you would sacrifice your comfort so that you would be in a position that you could give more to others. But that's exactly what the churches in Macedonia were doing. He says they were not just giving out of what they, what they had. They were giving out of the core of what they needed. Changing you know, their lifestyle because giving was something that was so important to them. The question is, is, is it God's love that motivates us to give? Or is it something else? These guys had a deep understanding of God's perspective on material wealth. And God has a perspective there that we should look at. One great short example that we could look at is we could look at Isaiah 44, 13 through 16. A very interesting Old Testament passage on the use of material wealth. Isaiah writes, the carpenter measures with a line. He cuts down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. 
It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it and makes an idol and bows down to it. Now this is sort of in the imagery of of the ancient world. (coughs) But to them, material wealth was, you know, trees and wood represented a huge material wealth. And she says, you know, you go, you cut down a tree and you can use that tree to meet your needs. You can build a fire from the wood, right? You can build a shelter for your family. But, you know, you can also make a god of it. Literally, he's talking about carving an idol out of wood, the same wood that you use to cook your food, the same wood that you use to make your house. And then you can worship that idol and put your trust and your desire for security and your hope for salvation in the same tree that you cut down and used for those other things. And he's basically saying that's what we do when we follow these counterfeit gods. And it, it puts out there that there's really two perspectives on wealth. Material wealth is a means to advance God's purposes and provide for my family's needs or Money and material goods are going to protect me and save me from harm and bring me joy. Right? Which, which of these statements are true? You know? And it's clear that you know, we live in a culture where most people are counting on number two. And how joyful and how full and how fulfilled are most people in our culture? We live in the wealthiest culture in human history. And yet we're more medicated, more depressed, more broken, more alone, more divorced, more divided, and more unhappy. Is that philosophy of life serving us well? Or is there something about God's perspective here that could help us? And it's important that we understand the Bible is not saying money is evil, right? A lot of people think that. They say, oh, well, I know a verse. It's money is the root of all evil. Eh, wrong. That's not actually what it says. It does not say that money is the root of all evil. Let's, let's, let's look at that verse. 1 Timothy 6, 10 through 11. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. You see that? It's the love of money that's the root of many kinds of evil. And it's a great truth. It's an important truth. If you're going to orient your life towards making money and make that the most important thing in your life, you will probably get money. But that does not mean you will have fulfillment, you will have joy, and you will have purpose. If you put it number one in your life, you are going down a path that is detrimental, dangerous, and painful, and will end in disappointment. That's what God is saying. The role of money must be kept in perspective in order to have a healthy spiritual life. Look again, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 9. True spirituality with contentment is great wealth. After all, we didn't bring anything with us when we came into the world. We certainly cannot carry anything with us when we die. 
So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. The issue is not, do you have money or do you not have money? The issue is, how do you view money? How do you view wealth and what are you expecting from it? What are you putting your hopes in? And there's a trap here that he says many fall into. And the question would be, how do we avoid that trap? How do we get God's perspective on these things and live in a way that's consistent with his character, his goodness, and that is consistent with the purpose which he created us for? That's the real question. And in the rest of this chapter that we're going to play out this morning, we're going to look at six principles from 2 Cor 8, 5 through 21. Now, I know what you're thinking. He's been talking for 32 minutes, and he's got six more points. Are you kidding me? <laughs> the answer is yes, but they are very short, I promise. So stick with me. 2 Cor 8, 5, and this, not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. And so the first of the six points is they first, how did they get this perspective? He's describing the people in Macedonia and this incredible perspective they have. And he says they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us. That if you want to have God's perspective on money, you have to get to know God. You have to invite God into your life. This perspective is radically different than anything else that you can, you can imagine. This biblical view of wealth and material goods has its center in you understanding that God loves you, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and that you can have a relationship with him. He wants to move into your life. And you have to open the door. He stands there and knocks, but you have to open the door. You have to decide that you want God, the God of the Bible, not the God of your own making, not the idol that you carve out of wood, the one that you decide what God is like, but the God of the Bible who tells you what he is like. Invite him into your life and let the reality of who he is connect with you and also connect with others in community. If you want to have this perspective, you're going to need relationships with people who value the same things and who are striving the same things for the same things because otherwise we live in a culture inundated and sick with materialism. Your relationship with God through Jesus Christ and your connection with others is indispensable in having a truly healthy, joyful life, especially when it comes to your perspective of money. He says in 7, But just as you abound in everything, and faith and utterance and knowledge and all earnestness, and the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. He says you guys are great. You're out there serving. You're loving. You're teaching. You're helping. And as you do that, do that. 
but also give because giving and being generous is just as important as those other things. You know, sometimes, you know, we, <laughs> there's, there's a saying in the business, right? The, the wallet is the last to convert, right? And it's like, you know, people will be like, oh, yeah, I'm way into Jesus. Let's do some work. Let's get going, you know? And you're like, okay, but we have expenses. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, I'll do all the other stuff, but uh, my money is for me. You say, okay, well, I mean, that's, that's your right. But, I mean, what about this perspective that being generous is a part of being spiritual? Well, I'll be generous with my time. You say, okay, that's great. God can use your time. But according to Scripture, He can also use your money to accomplish things. Is that something, is that something where, well, that area is out of bounds? And it's real easy to do, right? It's real easy to be like, well, that area is out of bounds because of all the cynical, negative ways that it's been abused for thousands of years. It's easy to do that, but it doesn't mean it's right to do that. Is it possible that we could use our resources, all of our resources, our time, our energy, our thought life, and our money, and all of those things could be put to God's use, and that we would be rewarded in the sense of having purpose and become joyful about allowing Him to have the use of all of our resources in that way? Jesus said in Matthew, 16, Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Such a poignant picture. He says, don't, have your treasure here on earth because then your heart will be here on earth. If you're deeply invested in material things, then your mind and your heart will be with material things. But if you're deeply invested in spiritual things, your mind and your heart will be in eternity. What you do and what you invest in is a barometer for what matters to you most, what is most dear to your heart. And let's face it, it's often very difficult to discern. You know, there's lots of things I'm suspicious in my heart that I think my head doesn't agree with. I often find myself doing things that are inconsistent, you know, with what I think I should do. And it turns out uh, my heart is deceitful and sick. And it doesn't, it, 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 pours out, and when I look at my life, I see that my actions are not always consistent with what I think is right and good. And what he's saying here is, is this is part of a diagnostic that you can do on your heart. If you're committed to God's ways, but not committed to generosity, that's kind of a canary in the coal mine of your heart. If you're not into being generous, what is going on in your heart with you and the Lord that is keeping you from having his perspective on these things? That's a question worth examining within yourself and talking to the Lord about. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He goes on in 8 and he says, and I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Third point. 
if we can't do this from a motivation of love, then that also points to a heart issue. He's saying, I'm not commanding you what to do. I'm explaining the need and trusting that as godly people, he will move your heart. And when we look at our own heart and how we feel and how we think about being generous and being giving, we need to realize that that points to, again, that's an issue that reveals something that's going on in here. You know, when I write a check to give because I've made a commitment and I think about all the things that I could have bought and that I would like to have if I weren't giving to this, that shows me there's something wrong with my heart. I don't have to beat myself up about it, but I need to go to the Lord and say, hey, uh, this, this issue is real. I got something going on here. And it's helpful, again, to be in a community where I can go to others and say, I'm feeling, I'm feeling this pull and this lack of joy about this area of my life, and I'm, I'm worried that I'm, I'm getting off track. He says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The fourth point, see, we're on four, I told you it'd be fast, right? Being generous is a way to demonstrate, a powerful way to demonstrate God's character. His point here is, is God wants you to be generous, right? But God is the most generous. You know, here we have Jesus Christ, God himself in, in human form. God is in, you know, uh, in heaven with no pain, no suffering, no threats to him whatsoever. And he gives up the entire wealth of that situation and goes through the indignity of birth, of needing food, of needing water, of being uh, oppressed and attacked, mocked, judged, beaten, and executed by human beings because he cared about us and he came to take away the sins of the world. He didn't have to do that. It's not like he had, you know, needs. God doesn't have needs. He can do whatever he wants to do. And he took that great wealth and set it aside so that he could come here and so that he could die for us. And he absolutely demonstrates what it's like to set your wealth aside and give to others with mercy and compassion to a degree that none of us could ever live up to. But that we should be inspired by that. We should look at that and say, I want to be like him. That's Paul's point. He says in verse 10, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also the desire to do it, but now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. Which brings us to the fifth point, which is that the willingness and participation is more important than the dollar amount. 
you know, one of the biggest things that we say is, well, you know, uh, I got a lot of debt. I got a lot of problems. My financial portfolio is not looking like it should. And, uh, you know, we hope that at some point we'll be able to become generous with our resources. But first we have to get our ducks in a row. And his point is, is actually participating in this and going through the action of giving is more important than how much you give. That this is, a, this is a grace, this is a gift of God and an opportunity to get involved with something that God wants to do. And we should not stand outside of it. Even if what we have to give is very little, it's very meaningful, it's very important that we engage and we open up our heart to this area where God wants to move us. And we should be sensitive to his leading. Verse 14, at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also might become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. Taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this gift, for we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Isn't that interesting? Meaning, that as we give, we should give responsibly. We should give with confidence to organizations that are accountable and transparent. How much of what I give actually goes to the poor? How much of what I give actually goes to the people who need it? Can I see your budget? The idea that there would be charitable, nonprofit organizations that are like, our books are closed, is super suspicious. Why is that? I would much rather give to an organization that says, you want to see our budget? What do you want to see? You can see it all. You can see every line if you want. We have nothing to hide. Someone that's willing to be accountable and open and prove that they are going to be responsible with what you give to them, not only in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of men. Don't ease your conscience and feel like, oh, I need to give and just, you know, give anywhere because, oh, I'll feel so better because I gave. Give somewhere that matters. Somewhere where you can have an impact, where God is at work. In conclusion, <clears throat> when people are spiritually attuned with God, they have the right view of money. Money is not evil. Money is not good. Money is a resource. And how money is used can be evil and good. And what we do with it is a reflection of what's in our hearts. People who have a spiritual perspective on this know they can enjoy God's blessings with moderation and thanksgiving. You know, they don't feel like, you know, they have to be homeless wearing a hair shirt, whipping themselves with a whip as they walk down the street. But they also will pray and think seriously before big purchases. But, you know, they will think about how they're using their resources and they won't just go off and spend untold thousands on things that they don't need. They want to get before the Lord and use their wealth, use His wealth responsibly. They care about the poor. They care about the spiritually needy. And they give joyfully and meaningfully. 
That's the example that the Macedonians were setting. That's what he's explaining to them, and that's what he's helping the Corinthians will do. Now, there's lots of things that we can do with this. There's lots of different directions. You know, we have a pledge campaign here. It doesn't start until about February of next year. So I'm not bringing this up because, you know, I'm, there's no big ask here tonight, this morning, guys, right? Like, bring out the, now we need your money. No, no, no. This is, we're studying 2 Corinthians. This is the passage we were in. And there are opportunities to give. You know, we ask that people who consider this to be their ministry help us with the expenses of the ministry so that we can continue to, to help others. If you're here as a guest, we want none of your money. We want to be your hosts. We want you to enjoy our hospitality, and we want you to know the Lord. That's what matters to us, not your wallet. But if you want to consider this to be your ministry, where you are connected in a community that is working together to help spread the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world and help the poor while we do it, you could do a lot worse than getting involved here. There are, there are opportunities here to get engaged. We have a ministry that extends all over the world. We have our Humanitarian Aid and Development Fund, which is um, a fund that is directly tied to overseas missions where our elders have gone through and vetted and examined and actually gone to the locations where these ministries exist and confirm that this is, in fact, accomplishing the purposes of God, and they are trustworthy. And so we did that because we wanted to help our people know outside of our church what are some really good areas where they can give. We have a new initiative happening with Global Partners where what we're doing is, is we're going out into different countries and we're partnering with other churches led by godly pastors and leaders, we're meeting with them, we're connecting with them, and we're saying, what can we do? We don't want to just send missionaries, Westerners, over, but what we also want to do is we, we realize that we have resources that you may not have. How can we help you and your church reach your own people? And that's where we've seen thousands of people come to Christ in Haiti and we're beginning to see the same thing in Ecuador. And soon there's going to be a new field opening up on the Ivory Coast. And people are giving into this fund, which is going to support indigenous workers in their own countries, winning their, their countrymen to Christ. And there's an opportunity there to give that's tremendous. Part of the reason we started the Global Partners Fund, I'm sitting in the elders meeting, right? And someone comes in, one of the elders, Jim Leffel, and he says, you know what, I'm really worried, I'm concerned because, um, you know, the builder generation is dying off and they're leaving all this money to my generation, meaning Jim's generation, the, the baby boomers. And he said that this is going to be the greatest transfer of wealth in the history of America as these people move on. And our church is going to be inundated with money, and we've got to do something about this. We've got to get rid of this money. And we were all like, crap, he's right. Like, that could ruin us, you know. If all of a sudden we don't have to, to give. And so we sat around and we said, what could we do? And he was like, let's get the money out to poor nations that are trying to reach their people with the gospel. And we were like, yes. Let's do that. You know, we don't want to be sitting around here with, you know, people uh, giving 
tens of millions of dollars covering the whole budget, and then everybody else being like, I guess I don't have to give because, you know, there was all this money that came in. Let's put that money out where God can use it most. What a great picture that is. I wish I would have thought of it. You can support a missionary. We, have mission, we do have Westerners who go abroad, who learn the language, who take their families and, and, and get engaged in helping cultures establish churches. That's another thing that you can do. You can join the fiscal support team here at Xenos, which is a, a team where uh, you give and uh, you get to be a part of some of the decision-making processes of the church. You can find lots of other organizations that have nothing to do with us that we know nothing about, and you can be generous. Just make sure that they're trustworthy. Let's close with this, 2 Cor 9, 7 through 8. I think this is probably the most powerful verse in all of Scripture on giving. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. There you have 2 Cor 8 and 9. God, thanks um, for your heart, for your generosity, and how out of your endless abundance, you just give and give and give to us. And we ask, God, that we could make a difference in our culture. We look out, and there are, there are scary times. There are strife. There's rioting. There's division. There's hate. And um, part of us just looks at that God and says, well, I'm glad I'm going home to you whenever that is. But right now, we know that we have a chance to help people, to help bring your love and your light to everyone, and that it's in times like this often that doors are opened for your gospel, and we pray that you would give us the boldness to step through them and share with anyone and everyone that has need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.